In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The plots of the 19th century novels I'm so fond of frequently revolve around inheritance, and it pretty much never goes well. No doubt there were straightforward cases of property passing from one generation to another without fuss, drama, hijinks, machinations, corruption of character, dashing of hopes, chins held high through adversity, and so forth. But nobody wants to read that kind of novel. The ones we like feature all of the above abundantly. A common character in such novels is the young man waiting around to inherit with great promises of what he'll receive once crabby old squire so-and-so kicks the bucket. Here are two examples from George Eliot, who's maybe my all-time fave. In Middlemarch, we have Fred Vincy, who's been borrowing freely based on expectations from his uncle Featherstone and spending even more freely on horses. A pinch in liquidity forces him to ask his friend, the honest farmer Caleb Garth, to co-sign on one of his debts. Embarrassing, but only temporary, Fred thinks. You can probably guess how things turn out. In Eliot's Adam Bede, there's young Arthur Donathorne waiting to inherit all the land around the town of Hayslope. He's depicted a bit more favorably than Fred Vincy is, and in fact dreams about how generous he'll be in contrast to his stingy old father. All his pictures of the future when he should come into the estate, Eliot writes, were made up of a prosperous, contented tenantry adoring their landlord who would be the model of an English gentleman, purse open to all public objects, everything as different as possible from what was now associated with the name of Donathorne. These magnificent plans go awry when Arthur meets the beautiful and flirtatious milkmaid Hetty Sorrel with whom he has an affair. This goes badly, but no spoilers. Um, anyway, I bring up these two exemplifications of a literary trope because, like Fred and Arthur, the audience St. Peter is addressing in our epistle today have been given expectations. They've been promised an inheritance. Last week, Father Rob kicked off our little sermon series here at All Souls on 1 Peter by speaking to us about this inheritance. It is an inheritance given by the great mercy of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a new birth into a living hope through Christ's resurrection. It is imperishable and kept in heaven for Peter's readers such that they can rejoice in it even as they undergo various trials. Father Rob emphasized the love for Christ that is the joyful outcome of these trials. And it is a glorious inheritance indeed. Even angels long to look into the things promised to the church in these last days that his readers are living in and that we still are living in. The promises are to us as well. Therefore, Peter says at the beginning of our reading today, here's what you should be up to. Here are the sorts of thoughts, feelings, 
and desires you should have. Here are the sort of relationships you should pursue and the actions you should undertake in them. We'll hear a lot more of this sort of advice in the weeks to come, some quite general, some addressed to specific segments of the church, but all addressed for the purpose of making sure we don't, like Arthur and Fred, misuse, abuse, or otherwise squander the great inheritance we've been promised. So let's dive right into Peter's flurry of exhortations after his initial dramatic, therefore. Therefore, Peter says first, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, and set all your hope on the grace Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. The first two commands here are adverbial, so the line could be read like this. Having prepared your minds for action and disciplining yourselves, set your hope fully on the grace Christ will bring you. The hope is at the core of what's being commanded. But the preparation and the discipline are worth dwelling on too. The word translated prepare here is literally the word for girding up your loins, hitching up your robes around your waist so they don't get in the way when you want to do something. Except here we're supposed to hitch up the robes of our minds, which I find it delightful trying to picture. As for the word discipline, the word here connotes sobriety, so as to be able to keep watch. Peter uses it again in chapter 5. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Except in our passage today, what we're to be watchful for, with our minds girded up against, is precisely setting our hopes on anything other than the grace we're promised through Christ. In particular, Peter says, do not be conformed to the desires you formerly had in ignorance. St. Paul uses the exact same word in Romans 12, suskematidzestha. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The root of the verb is the word schema, like a plan or a model or whatever. I take the point in both cases to be this, Unlike Fred and Arthur, who are full of worldly hopes and plans and schemes for what they'll do with their inherent inheritances, the model and plan for our lives is to be Christ. On his grace, our hope is to be fully set. That's Peter's first command to us. And the second is to be holy, even as the one who called us is holy. Quoting Leviticus, Peter says, It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Doubtless, that's an important command indeed. But I'll confess, it is one that I struggle knowing what to think or say about. Holiness seems to me a bit abstract, especially trying to be holy as God is holy. That's probably excellent evidence of my own lack of holiness, if I ever needed any. But anyhow, I'm going to pass the holiness by for now and loop back to it in a moment. The third command I find a bit more relatable. Live in fear during the time of your exile. 
The exile, he mentions, connects back to the first line of Peter's letter, where he addresses it to the chosen sojourners. He means not just that the folks he's writing to are resident aliens in Roman provinces of modern-day Turkey where they live, but moreover that as Christians, they would be exiles from their heavenly homeland anywhere they went on earth during these last days as they suffer various trials expectantly awaiting their inheritance. We can take Peter's words here as addressing us too. And what he says to us is, be afraid. We invoke as father one who judges impartially according to each person's work. And while we know we were ransomed from the futile conduct we inherited from our ancestors, we weren't ransomed with worthless, perishable stuff like silver or gold, but rather with the blood of Christ. This was destined to happen before the foundation of the world, but revealed in these last days for our sake. So no pressure or anything. Peter's hyperbole here is evident. Silver, gold, and inheritances from one's ancestors are, of course, things that we, Fred and Arthur, and Peter's original audience all alike regard as precious. But Peter is saying a far more precious price was paid to provide our inheritance for us. Once that fact sinks in properly, we should feel fear. But there are different kinds of fear, right? Some paralyze, others motivate. And it's clearly the latter sort Peter has in mind for the fourth command he gives is to feel more than just fear, it's to feel love. He says, now that you've purified your souls out of obedience to the truth so that you have mutual, genuine love, love one another deeply from the heart. The obedient soul purification that is the starting point here, presumably related to the holiness he enjoined previously, is to prepare the ground for love. I find this thought very helpful, for there are versions of what holy behavior looks like that I think would paralyze me with fear, trying to live up to them. But Peter ties the holiness he has in mind to love, which I find motivating indeed. Still, blessed as that thought might be, neither I nor anyone else should suppose that the sort of love Peter commands is easy, or that it somehow repeals the commands to live in holiness and fear. Here's something noteworthy. Peter first says, after we've purified our souls so that we have mutual, genuine love, and the word for love is Philadelphia, the bond of affections between siblings. But when it comes to the love Peter commands, love one another deeply from the heart, the word is agape, the divine love God has for us. So when Peter said, be holy as the one who called us is holy, he meant at least in part, love one another as God loves us. And that sort of love we know 
willingly pays the highest, costliest price. No wonder, then, that we find the sort of fear Peter mentions showing up in today's reading from Acts as well, which has the tail end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, in which he quotes the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, even upon my slaves, both men and women, and they shall prophesy. The sermon concludes, and its audience, who had previously sneered at the apostles as just a bunch of Galileans, are cut to the heart, it says. They ask in awed tones, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, Peter tells them. And about 3,000 of them are. And fear came upon everyone, it says, because of the signs and wonders they saw performed. This fear is a jubilant sort of fear, for Luke notes their joyful hearts. It is also a motivating sort of fear, like we saw before, for Luke also notes their generous hearts. And he writes, all were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this portrait of early Christian community, koinonia, provides a window into what the agape love Peter commands in his letter looks like in action. But as with holiness, I find it a hard thing to know what to think or say about. It's tempting to write off Luke's portrayal of the Jerusalem koinonia as a radical, short-lived experiment with no particular implications about how we ought to dispose of our property beyond a general recommendation to have generous hearts. Nothing particularly Christian about that. Even aristocrats like Arthur Donathorne could get behind it. But if we resist this temptation and insist that Luke's message does have radical implications for us too, how do we spell this out in a way that's both loving and wise and avoids hypocrisy? I know good and well that I have very little wise to say on this score. So I'll conclude with just one, I think, helpful suggestion from the Cuban-born theologian Justo Gonzalez. The passage Peter quotes from Joel about the leveling action of God's spirit poured out upon all flesh sets the tone for the whole book of Acts, Gonzalez writes. Joel says even slaves, both men and women, will prophesy, suggesting an upending of the social and economic order. Yet, in the Jerusalem koinonia, Gonzalez sees no reason for supposing that having all things in common meant giving up all property once and for all. Rather, Gonzalez notes that the imperfect tense of the verbs sell their goods and distribute their possessions indicate that this was an ongoing activity. And he suggests thinking of the koinonia as something like a joint business venture. 
Luke's gospel says James and John were koinoni with Peter in their fishing enterprise. They were co-owners or business partners. And just as their wealth was wrapped up in their joint venture, so too should ours be with this joint venture of ours. So what does that suggest? Perhaps a communal approach to decision-making when it comes to wealth, as opposed to its being a matter of purely private conscience? It certainly seems to mean using our wealth to meet any needs within our community. But moreover, the last line from our Acts reading reminds us of the expansive character of the Jerusalem community. Day by day, the Lord added to their number. Because, of course, the new business enterprise of Peter and the other apostles was fishers of men. And we, I'd say, should consider ourselves in on this enterprise too, if indeed we're obedient to the first command from Peter's letter today, which goes back to where we started, with hopes and inheritance. Let us, like Peter urges, set all our hopes on the glorious inheritance we're to receive when Christ is revealed. Amen.